every time we talk to people and let them know that they have been exposed or that their case has been linked back to an event that they attended outdoors, the response I got every single time from every person was, I didn't know you could catch COVID outside. That is alarming. That means that we are not doing a good job. We in public health aren't doing a good job with getting the messages out there that, that yes, this can happen. And yes, it does happen. the death panel to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod we do two shows a week our monday episode is a patron exclusive which will sometimes get unlocked in an emergency like last week when i was in the hospital so if you'd like to get access to all of our bonus episodes like my interview with tracy rosenthal about los angeles's homeless industrial complex become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I'm really excited to welcome our guest to the show today. Dr. Teresa Chappell is an epidemiologist with extensive experience working not in an academic setting, but on the ground in the field. Dr. Chappell, welcome to the Death Panel. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. I am so excited to be here. I have listened to you guys throughout the pandemic. You've had some of my favorite people on here. So to be a part of this is is awesome for me. It's a mutual admiration society. Um, So I've asked you here today to share with us some of what you've come to know about COVID transmission through your direct epidemiological investigations and public health work throughout the pandemic. Specifically, I was hoping to speak with you a bit about outdoor transmission. You have been vocal on this and also shared on Twitter that you've personally investigated instances of this happening yourself. But first, to start us off, before we get into that, would you mind talking a little bit about your background? What led you into the role that you're in now, I guess, pre-pandemic? What was your work like and how did it shift during the pandemic, leading you towards the position where you're in now? Sure. Um, So I am an epidemiologist by training. Uh, I have PhDs in both epidemiology and in maternal and child health. And so I have, my background has tended to be in uh, pediatric reproductive epidemiology and making sure that those groups, those populations stay as healthy as possible for as long as possible. So I actually uh, spent a lot of time looking at risk factors for pregnant people, risk factors for uh, their fetuses and their children, all the way up to probably between the time that people are thinking about getting pregnant until that child is 25. And then it's time for that age group to start thinking about getting pregnant. So I kind of work in that life cycle of diseases, what can be prevented, and how to make sure that people are as healthy as possible throughout those stages of life. Um, so that brings me to the pandemic, right? How did I get here? Right. Well, early in 2020, it was the thought process that children don't get COVID. Right. Right. Of course. That was the that was the sort of first truism that that emerged throughout the pandemic is before even the discussion of it being mild, right? Was that <laughs> children don't get COVID, they're they're sort of magically protected. I have never met a disease that, you know, 
I, I've never met an infectious disease that <laughs> skips over children. So I thought that that was just really one interesting thing that maybe people like me needed to dig into. People who have an understanding mm-hmm. of children and childhood and childhood diseases. And what I started asking was, maybe it's not that children don't get COVID. Maybe childhood COVID looks different from mm. adult COVID. And we need to start thinking about it in those terms. We think about things like childhood asthma. We think about childhood leukemia. We think about all these other diseases and we put the terms childhood in front of it because it presents differently than the adult version of that same disease. So maybe that was what was going on with COVID. And um, that took a lot of pushing in the field and in medicine and everywhere to get people to think, well, maybe we shouldn't be withholding COVID tests from children. (laughs) Maybe we should test these children to see if they have it instead of just running with the idea that children don't get COVID. So it was a whole lot of kind of proving that children get the disease and then trying to see, well, okay, fine. We believe that children get it, but children can't spread it. Right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense either, but let's, you know, let's now prove it. Um, one of my pet peeves kind of throughout this pandemic in terms of the way, the, whole, the entire way that this pandemic has been done is that it's been every step of the way, you have to prove that something happens. We don't do that with other things. We don't say, you know, an airplane can only crash at this one spot because we've seen it crash here. It can't crash two feet from here, right? We don't constantly make it that we have to prove that an airplane can crash all the way along its flight path in order for us to care about the fact that an airplane can crash. But that is exactly what we did with COVID. We made it where we had to prove that COVID could happen at every single place before we could care and put mitigations in place at those places. And so um, this has been like um, just a major frustration of mine all the way through the pandemic. And that brings us to now where we are, where we can accept that children get COVID. We can accept that children can spread COVID. We can accept that children can get sick enough from COVID for it to be a big deal. And maybe we should be concerned that children can get long COVID. That's kind of where we are right now and the, and the whole children in COVID era. But this brings us to like the, the next phase mm-hmm. where I'm like, okay, I can leave the children in COVID thing alone. And, and now I can be the one sounding the alarm on outdoor transmission because we really want something to be COVID safe. Right. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, that's supposedly the goal, right? (laughs) (laughs) We are all so tired of COVID. And I tell people like, I am probably one of the most tired (laughs) people out here. Um, COVID has been, taking over all aspects of my work and it really should just be one component. And so I am tired of COVID too. I want COVID to go away. I want a safe place uh, to be where I am not worried about my child under the age of five who's yet to be vaccinated uh, contracting COVID. So the idea of going outside and interacting with people outside for socialization and just for some normalcy is something that I would love to just take and grab onto and be able to do with no concern. But that's not where we are. Yeah. I like the way that you framed it in terms of having all having to sort of claw back all of this work, all of this intellectual labor. It's been years now of trying to force this kind of idea of, no, we actually have to look at COVID in children 
And I, you know, I think this is one of the wins actually. And this is something that like, it might feel like it's sort of a difficult and still contentious area, but we've certainly, I think, gotten really sort of far um, recently. And one of the things that I worry about, right, is that we have, at least there is some legibility and understanding that within school buildings, you know, there needs to be something in place to keep children from just you know, being sort of in the path of like a let it rip strategy. But now as we're transitioning to summer and we're transitioning to, you know, maybe kids being at camp or people being outside, there's this kind of like, there's this kind of like truism, right? This new truism, as you're pointing out. And it's this kind of idea of like when you're outside, specifically outdoor transmission, that COVID does not spread outdoors full stop. Um, like it all, that outdoors is a safe zone. You know, the idea is like if you're playing a game of tag, right? And as soon as you get out of the building, you're safe. And sometimes you see this in the most ridiculous way. Like when I'm leaving the pharmacy and the pharmacy is already, you know, a mess because you've got tests to treat people in there and people without masks and people picking up prescriptions and, you know, and people shopping. And when they get into the double doors exiting the Walgreens and you have the sort of sliding glass doors or something, they'll get into one sliding glass door and rip their mask off. Like it's some sort of like, you know, special pressure seal that they've crossed the threshold, right? And there's this kind of, um, and we've made fun of it a lot in terms of when, you know, people were sort of setting up these elaborate dining huts and and assuming that even though if you put up a bunch of plexiglass that it somehow would be fine because it was outside in the street. But outdoors, like in a park, for example, or at a sports game, like these are the kinds of scenarios that people have deemed like green zones, totally safe. And I think that one of the things that, you know, you're asking and that you were asking on Twitter, which is why I'm so glad that you were here, is sort of like, I guess, where are these assumptions coming from, right? Because if you look at sort of what's going on, that's not necessarily the case. And in, from your perspective, I mean, you've you've investigated instances of outdoor transmission. Um, before we get into specifics, like, let's do the basics, right? Like, is it possible? Can you catch COVID outside? So one of the things that I think is extremely important kind of for us to remember throughout this pandemic is that science is science, right? Like, mm-hmm. there are proven facts. And aerosol transmission is one of those proven facts and that yes you like it it doesn't change (laughs) if i am talking to someone and we're right face to face in front of each other and one of us has covid and the other one doesn't like the transmission is going to happen or is likely to happen there are definitely scientific mechanisms and pathways for that transmission to happen Uh, so to me for people to I really think that that is not a possibility just makes me question how well we do science in America. <laughs> how, mm-hmm. how well are we teaching people the basic skills that they need to know um, in, in order to have these conversations? And so I think it's really like starting at the basic building blocks. Like, can't you smell smoke outside? Can't you? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just these, these are these weird things that, um, that I just, I find it hard to, to understand. Uh, but I do... I, I think the problem comes from people not understanding the difference between low and no. Yes. And that has happened throughout the entire pandemic where children are at a smaller risk or less or lower risk. And people have interpreted interpret that to mean no risk. And then one of the words that we use 
all throughout that I absolutely hate is the word safe because safe means without risk, right? Mm -hmm. And so if people are using safe, then yeah, then you think then that means that there's no risk because this is safe. We should really look at the verbiage we use. We should make sure that people are understanding the differences. Uh, At one point in the pandemic, they were saying that outdoors is 19 times less likely for transmission to happen. Okay, that's great. We can put a number on it. That's nice. Uh, But what does that mean to someone who's not a scientist? What would that mean to my mom? Uh, How would she take that and interpret that and then go into the world and and act? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think we really need to look at our messages, see what it means to normal people and see if that's what we're really trying to get across. I think if what we're trying to say is outdoors is better than indoors, we can say that, right? but we can still say that there's a risk associated with interacting with people when we're dealing with a pandemic that is airborne, right? And I don't think that that message stays. <laughs> uh, that's not something that people still understand and, and are holding on to right now. Right. I mean, that position or even like holding open for that position is treated as alarmist by some people. I mean, if if you post about this, right, like you get people who bombard you or at least I get people who will send me messages that are like, if you look at every randomized control trial, it says masks don't work. And, you know, it really brings out the bullies. And they're like, you know, show me an instance of outdoor transmission. Show me this sort of example of the plane crash, which I really like that one. I hadn't actually heard that that metaphor before. And I really appreciate it, by the way. But, you know, you've got this kind of, um, right, this burden of proof that's like pushed on anyone who's really just coming from the perspective of like, well, if we take what we know about COVID in one arena and sort of apply it evenly, then it would make sense that you could get COVID indoor and outdoor, right? But I think one of the things that we've seen is that there's this sort of fundamental misunderstanding about like how you catch COVID, right? So maybe the thing that's sort of is the actual conversation here, right? Is that, is like, how does one become sick with COVID? How do you actually go from being in an environment of sort of being around virus to being sick? Um, I mean, this is something that you've studied and you've tracked. Do you mind walking me through it as if you're telling it to me for the first time? I'm someone who's been, you know, not paying attention or something. And I, and I've just, you've sent this to like, my friends sent this to me. Right. And they're like, listen, please, like, I want you to meet up with me outside, but I need you to wear a mask. And like, here's why, like, I think we want to be able to take those people, right. And bring them to the point that we were able to bring people on understanding what's going on with kids and COVID. And I think it's one of those things that you just can't find access to right now in the media, basically anywhere. I think we have to just keep reminding people that it's those close contacts, it's those frequent contacts, it's the bringing, like the virus is looking for access to your body, right? So that's going to happen through your mouth, nose, and eyes. And if someone has the ability to breathe on you, then that is the way that you can contract the virus. And that can happen indoors because the virus can be trapped there. And it can accumulate faster in an indoor setting. Outdoors, there's space for it to kind of move. And that is the thing that makes it, that lowers the risk, but it's not the thing that takes away the risk. And because the risk is not taken away, we should also do something to help mitigate that risk. And that's something could just be as simple as wearing a high quality mask. When you're outdoors in a crowded setting, where you don't have the ability to distance and you don't have the ability to to control 
who is in your environment and who you're coming in contact with. And to me, these are like really simple truths that could be easily instituted. Um, and I totally get that as the hotter summer gets and as the more humid summer gets, the more you don't want to wear your mask outdoors because it could be more uncomfortable. Uh, I appreciated wearing my mask outdoors in the winter. It was better than a scarf. And so I think <laughs> it really, <laughs> we need to like look at what are some barriers and we can talk about those. We can figure out ways to uh, help people work around this so that it's not um, the only option is to just take your mask off and, and chance it. Right. So, you know, I mean, what's sort of what's going on when people actually like become sick with COVID? Because I think one thing that people are really concerned about when they're they're like thinking about outdoor transmission is that they don't know like how much virus actually can get them sick. And this is, like, I think, something that is an unknown. Right. But between that being an unknown and the fact that there wasn't a lot of tracking um, of like tracking reporting of this early on, I think we've just, as you're saying, we've interpreted it as no risk. But, you know, if you're someone who's like, uh, I don't know, if you're just like sort of trying to explain to someone else, like what the importance of needing to mask outside is, I think people often demand wanting to know sort of like, well, what's the reason, right? Or what's the sort of need for it? And I mean, it's, it's difficult because it's not like, it's not like we actually have the evidence per se, right? But w what we know is like how the virus behaves and how it moves in the air and how people become sick sort of regardless of what environment they're in when the air is like not moving, you know, and there are plenty of weather conditions where that can happen outside as well as inside. So I have recently investigated or helped others investigate six different outdoor outbreaks. And I think that, you know, when it happens... And, um, I'm, I'm thinking back to last summer when there was an outdoor festival in Europe and it led to a major uh, outbreak. And people were all shocked as <laughs> that it could happen. Uh, and that happened as well with the six that I just investigated uh, with some colleagues. And every time we talk to people and let them know that they have been exposed or that their case has been linked back to an event that they uh, attended outdoors, the response I got every single time from every person was, I didn't know you could catch COVID outside. Oh and so it was really like, to me, that is alarming. That means that we are not doing a good job. We in public health aren't doing a good job with getting the messages out there that yes, this can happen. And yes, it does happen. Um, and so there's one piece. I am a applied epidemiologist. That means I don't work in an academic setting. And the research that I do, I put into practice immediately. And so I'm able to take like the results of a study that I do and then just go ahead and communicate it to the communities that I'm working with and help them make whatever change is necessary. Um, but that is different than what happens on a large scale when you have academic epidemiologists who then publish these results. They become big stories and then, you know, larger populations get to have access to this data and this information. And so I think that that's one of the pieces that's needed is that we need to apply to epidemiologists. People like me need to continue to link with academic uh, epidemiologists to get this information out there as far as possible so that people can stop saying that they didn't know, uh, can stop saying that they didn't even know it was a possibility. And then hopefully 
that can help and put pressure on different organizations because there are large organizations that people listen to that can easily come out and say, if you're going to be playing uh, softball, then when you're in the dugout, you should mask because you're going to be really close to people. You're planning there. You're talking. You're figuring out your next steps. That's a high-risk situation that happens in an outdoor setting. So at least wear your mask in the dugout, right? Like there are some clear messages that could come out that we know. Uh, I'm thinking back to like April of 2021. Uh, Dr. Walensky came out and said that the nation was seeing a lot more COVID cases and they were being linked back to sports. Some of these were outdoor sports. And it would be really clear to say like, this is the situation in which made the outdoor sports a, a risk factor for spread. But that hasn't happened and people haven't caught on to it. And yet we had a whole nother spring season where the nation as a whole saw an increase of COVID cases, most likely linked again to outdoor sports. Uh, and yet there was nothing said about this surge. There was nothing uh, warning us that we knew that this would come. We knew that this would happen. We also know what the links are. Uh, and these are some things you can do about it. This time around, by the time we got to April of this year, we talked about, you know, 95% of the country doesn't need to wear masks indoors, <laughs> yet alone outdoors. So, Right. The position that we're in right now is like abysmal. And I think a lot of people are kind of in the, in the moment where they feel like, uh, you know, outdoor transmission is maybe the furthest thing from their mind because not only... Like, is there this sort of understanding that it's no risk? I think a lot of people don't even really know, like, what's safe. And I think, you know, what's clear to me is that essentially, like, if you were to be making these recommendations right now, you would be making the same recommendations for when people should be masking for, like, both indoor and outdoor, right? Which is, like, when you are in a really tight space with other people and that can occur, like, regardless of sort of whether there's a roof or not. You know, obviously, like, you balance all these other diseases at the same time with COVID, I can't imagine that like there are ever like enough resources for applied epidemiologists who are actually like working in the field. But, you know, I think one of the things that COVID is really doing that scares me, and I'd be curious to hear if you have thoughts on this as well, is, um, you know, the fact that it takes up all of this time, right, that that would have been like spent working on these other diseases, right? And we're spending all of this time and energy fighting these sort of battles over, you know, very small things that you would think would have been just like really just regular and obvious. But I feel like a lot of these obvious things about COVID are just sort of still unsaid. So do you have like a top, you know, couple of obvious things about COVID that you wish people knew more surely or more confidently than you feel like people have um, sort of baked into their understanding of how, how the virus works? I think a lot of the misunderstanding comes from changing guidance and changing rules along the way. Um, I feel like people understood COVID. I feel like the general population, general public understood COVID better the summer of 2020 than they understand right now. (laughs) Um, So my top line that I tell people all the time is that you can still be infectious after five days. I think that that is the biggest thing that people just really either don't know or don't want to know. They want to return back to life as usual on day six and keep it moving. Um, But over and over again, I'm telling people that you could still be infectious and that you should possibly take a rapid antigen test in order to leave isolation and not just leave it because of the day that you're on. 
my uh, I have a relative right now who has COVID, and I recently told him that, and his response to me was, "That's why nobody likes you." <laughs> Right. Because I mean, the situation is so untenable that it's basically put people like you in the position of being the bad guy, right, of enforcing and trying to make recommendations when you have the norm enforcers like David Leonhardt, who like, um, you know, they'll put out like the newsletter is saying like, oh, you know, mask mandates don't work and like you children are don't, are totally fine. And you sort of have this this immense pressure, right, that's like taking away, I think, all this um, extra energy. And it, it takes up, I think, a lot of energy to fight back. And there isn't a lot of feeling of sort of solidarity from people. Because I think when you sort of try and advocate for this stuff, you you often end up with people, I think, asking you for, for a kind of list of like, what is safe and what is not proof that people actually just sort of can't provide. I mean, what what's what kinds of information do you think we're going to need in the way that we needed certain talking points with COVID and kids to be able to fight this narrative on outdoor transmission? You know, something else came up uh, to mind while you were talking. So I'm going to answer this first and then work my way to your question. Um, But in like the summer of 2020, there were researchers who created like a COVID DAO. Like this is very unsafe behavior. (laughs) This is uh, safer things that you could be doing. And I think that right now, People, especially vaccinated people and fully, uh, fully up to date on their vaccines, um, just lump everything together. And they have decided that the vaccine is the safest thing that they could have done. And so that means that every other activity they do has equal weight. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is really a missed opportunity is for us to be talking about the difference between the virus and the disease Mm -hmm. and the role that the vaccine plays in fighting the virus or the disease. Uh, When I talk to people about it and really talk about it in terms of like HIV being the virus and AIDS being the disease and SARS-CoV-2 being the virus and COVID being the disease, I get people to understand and see the difference between you know, what the vaccine does and how the vaccine works, and then still their need to remain safe. I think another message that people are missing is that you don't need to do all the high-risk activities you want to do all in the same time, right? So I have a funeral to go to this weekend, and it's an outdoor funeral. And so we've been talking, I have been talking to my family about making sure that we don't do high-risk activities in the week leading up to it, Mm. making sure that we're going to test once we all come so that when we get together at this outdoor event where we will all be masked, we won't be putting other family members at risk, right? But how many other families are having this conversation that don't have an epidemiologist embedded in their families, right? Right, (laughs) none. Yeah. People are coming around their elderly family members at a funeral. They're hugging them. And now we have the spread that is now more dangerous for one subset of your family members. And so I just think in terms of like everything that's missing, like that, that's what's all missing. <laughs> right. And that's completely absent from the sort of uh, structural perspective that people are offered on COVID. First of all, I'm sorry for your loss, but I'm impressed that you're you're sort of able to talk your family into being on top of this. I mean, I'm sure having the position of of being 
the epidemiologist in the family makes that a little bit easier. Obviously, it's your your job, and so people trust you. But I think a lot of people feel that when they try and like communicate these things to their family members, their family members have these messages that are from, you know, sometimes from the CDC, sometimes from the federal government, but sometimes just from like completely other sources, right, which are external, you know, maybe through like their their workplace policies, right? Um, like, oh, well, I work in a healthcare facility and I don't have to wear an N95 mask there, right? And so these there are these sort of structural components, which I think make it really difficult for people to try and have these conversations when there is this bias towards kind of normality where you have uh, this kind of like social pressure to minimize, right? I mean, what do you, I mean, do you experience like talking to people who um, maybe like in the course of investigations who are like also like put in positions where like they're not comfortable with how they got infected? Because I know a lot of people like are choosing to do these activities, but at the same time, there's like so many people that are also like pressured into it, whether by like work or, you know, by family members or obligation of some other kind. I have heard so many people express anger at the fact that they have managed to stay COVID negative for 24 months, 26 months. And yet a policy change has forced them into an environment that is less protective than the one that they've created for themselves for the last two plus years. And then they end up either exposed to COVID immediately or testing positive for COVID. The number of people who have really just expressed their anger at that has been extremely high. And yet they're treated as if they're the ones that are wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I actually heard someone say, like, what are you waiting for to catch COVID? you're going to catch it. What are you waiting for? What, <laughs> and why are you upset that you have it? Right. Um, because people have now just accepted that this is a fact of life that you're going to catch COVID. But then they also on the other side say that COVID is like the flu, but I have never had a flu season where people have just said, what are you waiting on? Go ahead and catch the flu. Right. <laughs> like, right. Everybody's going to catch it. No, this is, it's weird to have this uh, duality in thinking that people have just accepted both of these really odd things to, to be equally true. Right. Because I mean, really the way that you sort of get sick, I mean, I think you, you alluded to this when you were talking about the using like HIV, um, serial converting to AIDS as a, as a metaphor to help people understand sort of how you go from a having SARS-CoV-2 in your body to having COVID-19, the disease, right? Because I think people misunderstand how, viruses move through the world. I mean, viruses, like we ascribe this kind of like anthropomorphized uh, framework to them where we we say we're like battling the virus. It's a war against this virus. It's a war against COVID-19. We have to learn to live with COVID-19 as if it's some sort of like foreign invader, right? And not only does this have like a long political history, like tied in with imperialism and xenophobia, like it also gives us a mentality about the virus that makes us think that like there is something out there in the air for us to sort of um, capture and battle with, right? But the the fact of the matter is, is that these are sort of inert things that are floating around in the air. They're not like out in the air trying to target people, right? <laughs> Who are like looking for all the vulnerable people in the crowd. It's passing through your body at all times, right? It's just a matter of how much 
virus is in you and where your immune system is at at that particular point, whether or not you're going to be, you know, uh, cross over the border between just having SARS-CoV-2 virus in your body and having those replicate enough for them to really produce like a COVID infection. I think one of the things that has made it hard for people is that COVID has been around for two plus years. And um, especially the people who have not ended up testing positive for COVID in this time is that they start to believe that, you know, I'm never going to get COVID or I have this special repellent around me that repels COVID. When one of the things that I think the CDC did really well with the change from Alpha to Delta was talk about the fact that Delta was a, this is a new game. This is a new uh, beast or however they described it. Letting people know that this one is much different than what we were dealing with with Alpha. It spreads faster. But then what they did was tell you to use the same tools that we had for Alpha. And so that really kind of messed up the messaging. Um, and now here we are with you know, all these Omicron sub-variants and these are spreading way faster and yet we haven't came out with new messaging about how it spreads and about how, you know, you can now be more at risk for catching it than you were with the earlier variants that we had. And I think that's one of the core messages that have been missing throughout because I have I have people in my personal life who have said, I haven't caught it yet. I'm not going to catch it. I just, you know, have the super immune system that's going to allow <laughs> me to stay safe from this. And they're not understanding that the virus is changing. The virus is doing exactly what viruses are supposed to do. But people don't realize that the virus job is to always outsmart <laughs> us so that it can continue to replicate. Right. Um and so I think that's kind of some of the messaging that really needs to find its way out there and that we need to stop saying that we have the tools um, to fight it. We need to say that these are some things that we can do. And as the virus continues to get smarter, we have to continue to get smarter. As the virus continues to get better at being infectious, we have to you know, rev up or change some of our approaches or things like that. I, nowhere in our messaging do we talk about how we need to adapt as the virus adapts. Right. I mean, that's virtually absent from the equation now. I think a lot of people bought into the idea that, you know, the the vaccine lowered your personal risk enough that they've kind of conflated like personal risk of severe disease and illness with um, your ability to, to like be uh, passing on a virus like case into your community, right? Because I think that's that's one of the big problems is that when people hear like, oh, you know, you, you, you're you vaccinated, you can be like, you're fully vaccinated, you can be relaxed now, go to events, take your mask off, like go to Disney World, whatever. You know, people, part of what they're basing like their calculations on is not sort of like, I think, an understanding of like how viruses move through the community, right? Like if one you know, if you've got these kind of like close contacts, right, that you're you're around and you think, oh, well, maybe they're all healthy and it's fine. Like, I just don't think people are thinking sort of beyond these uh, immediate interactions to the interactions that those people have and and so on and so forth, because I don't think that they're 
you know, as you said early on, it's kind of like this is a this is a failure of like science education and this is a failure of our sort of society to um, have prepared systems that are ready to deal with anything other than a like fully sort of commodified um, consumer approach to to public health. Because what we have now is we're trying to to sort of treat a disease that's in the air as if, you know, you can control it sort of by exception and by rule, right? And that's that's fundamentally not actually how this works. We sort of have to approach things, I think, with the perspective of sort of knowing, okay, like the virus is in the air. It moves in the air when it's hot out. You know, the virus, like, maybe the virus will die more, but like whether the virus is like in the air in abundance or it's in the air in only a little amount, like it doesn't matter. That could be the moment that you like have enough in you to get sick anyways. And that idea is like considered alarmist. I mean, it's considered alarmist, but it's just a description of actually how getting sick works. (laughs) Yes. I, all of this is so weird to me as a person who has studied public health for 22 years now, I think one of the oddest things that has happened throughout this pandemic is us talking about it in terms of individual responsibility and individual health. Like this is, it's a communicable disease. And the whole point of a communicable disease means that someone else has to give it to you, right? So even if I'm as responsible as I could possibly be for my own health, I'm getting it through another vector. I'm getting it through another way that I can't control. And so I just find this, the fact that so many people are okay taking an an individual approach and sharing that with others uh, as the way that we should be handling this. I find this to be extremely odd because this is not public health. And I mention that all the time when people tell me or ask me why I am not supporting an individualistic approach to this, I make it clear that I am not a medical doctor. Uh, Medical doctors deal with individual health (laughs) one-on-one. I deal with public health, and it is my job to make sure that the public is healthy and that I'm stopping transmission at a population level. And so I make it clear all the time, I'm I'm not qualified to do (laughs) one-on-one. Right. I mean, can you... And in your professional opinion, as someone who studies health at the population level, can you stop COVID with personal responsibility? Impossible. I mean, I I can't imagine a future where that's possible. And I, I think one of the things that we keep trying to see from people is like, oh, well, we just need to like commercialize this. Oh, it's just time for like COVID to sort of enter the private market. And, you know, I think for people who you know, work in public health, who study health, who study sort of the economy of health as well. It's terrifying to think about, you know, what's going to happen when you have the dynamics of COVID and the kind of disease that COVID is. Um, when you have that meet our our systems right now that already perpetuate just disinvestment from communities that need access to health care, when you have uh, systems that basically ration care according to ability to pay, you know, there are already like tremendous weights for uh, appointment if you're like if you're a Medicaid patient, right? Like as the sort of state of emergency ends. And I think, that's very much something that people right now are advocating for more more so than they I know this is like something that happens over and over, like someone declares the end of the pandemic like every day. But 
you know, I think as we enter summer and because of this myth of like outdoor transmission doesn't exist and doesn't happen, we kind of are in this opportunity where the fight for the end is going to be really hard in the coming months. And add to that people not testing and people taking at home tests and not reporting. It's really going to be the challenge of this summer as to really being able to identify where we are at this stage in the pandemic. And I try to make it clear to people all the time, like (laughs) I get asked often, when is the pandemic going to end? And I remind people that I'm not the one that called it a pandemic and I'm not the one who can end the pandemic. Like that is literally the job of WHO. And if you hear anybody else saying that the pandemic has ended and they are not the spokesperson for WHO, they are not... (laughs) the uh, source that you should be listening to or if the pandemic has ended or not. So, um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a fight that, that we're looking at right now where you have people sort of just like trying to get out of, I think trying to get out of structural critique, right. And trying to get out of these big solutions because you see this like horizon of, of getting these things funded, like, as increasingly smaller. And, and what I think worries me so much is that, you know, as you're saying, like there, there, there's lots of home testing, there's no pathway for reporting home test positives. We are slowly losing the tools that people like you were using on the ground doing applied work also to even communicate and track these, you know, outbreaks as they occur in communities. And right now, I mean, it's basically the United States is just one big outbreak again. Um, And unfortunately, we've, been in this position like too many times, but do you worry that some of the tools that you need to fight COVID are not going to be there, you know, come this time next year? Totally. Um, even this time, like what I have personally seen is the same, you know, impacts of COVID this spring. It's reminiscent of the impacts of COVID from the winter surge, but our numbers are not the same as from the winter surge. And it's clear to me that it's a it's the fact that in the winter surge, home tests weren't available and now home tests are abundant. Uh, but if I go to a store and the store is closed for COVID, then I know that we're experiencing a surge. If you know airlines are canceling hundreds of flights each day, it's because we're in a COVID surge, right? And these are the things that just aren't what what instead we get are our COVID case counts and looking at that nice, you know, peak that we see and comparing our peak from um, May and June to our peak from January of this year and saying the, the peaks aren't the same, but without talking about the fact that there are differences in reporting now that we that we didn't have. And so these two peaks aren't comparable. Uh, we're not having that conversation. We're also going into this phase where now we're watching the hospitalization rates as a result of the surge that we were just in. And we have lost over a million people already. So now we're going back to those same communities and attacking those same communities with the same virus and then seeing how many more people we can lose each time and how many more people we can end up hospitalized. And I think that this is another kind of profile that needs to be drawn and that we need to be talking about the fact that our number of people who are fully vaccinated and fully boosted uh, who are now hospitalized has increased this peak, this this surge compared to the surges that we've had before. 
because our picture of who's vulnerable has changed each time that we are entering these surges. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, part of what I think is the problem is that we're in uh, this framework where all of our approaches to the pandemic are overly simplistic, right? I mean, this kind of this kind of discussion that we're having now is not something that is at all easily accessible to people. It's not something that's being communicated. You don't have uh, the kind of work and labor going into like talking to people about these things that you you need in order to give people the ability to actually sort of understand what we have is this kind of uh, risk assessment, um, you know, data-driven risk assessment framework that that sort of gives people a score and uses averages and numbers to try and sort of almost bully people into taking the approach of using as little protection as possible as if it's like a bad thing to like accidentally maybe overprepare. Um, <laughs> and it's almost like the kind of attitude that people are being talked out of is framed as like, oh, this is like a try hard attitude or something. Oh, you're just like a sort of do goody who's like trying to do everything you can for COVID. And just because I don't do that doesn't mean that I don't care about vulnerable people. But like, you know, you were talking about having these conversations with people in your family. If you had someone in your family who was like giving you that back, um, if you were saying, you know, here's what we need to do before an event, because the state has abandoned us, because COVID is everywhere, you need to reduce your high risk activities for, you know, week to 10 days. We need to follow these protocols. We need to be masking even when outside, you know, and if they come back to you with this kind of, well, you know, screw you, like this is just like try hard do goodism and I'm not, this isn't realistic. And what are you going to make me do this forever? Like, what would you say to that person? I run into those people all the time. <laughs> uh, my children mask at the playground and I get looks from people. Um, at the playground recently, someone told my six-year-old, you don't have to wear a mask outside. <laughs> and so my six-year-old started to take off her mask. And I said to my six-year-old, um, mommy would like for you to wear a mask. And mommy would like for you to remind people that you can protect yourselves in the way that you feel is best and that your mask protects you and your mask protects them as well, right? And so um, I really kind of take these as educational moments and really try and show people that, okay, let's talk about what is the harm in adding this layer of mitigation, right? And if, you, if there is no harm to wearing a mask outdoors, then let's do it. Let's add the layer of mitigation. If we're driving a car, uh, when I was young, I used to sit on my mom's lap in the front seat of the car. <laughs> we no longer do that. We have added multiple layers of mitigation that make the way that I used to ride the car um, not something that my, my kids will ever experience, right? But no one will ever say that because you're wearing your seatbelt, you should cut off all of your airbags because it's not necessary. You already have a protection, right? No, we want our seatbelts. We want all our airbags. We want our cars to be you know, crash tested. We want side view mirrors that beep and blink at us. We want everything so that we can be as protected as possible in a car. But if I take that same thing and say, well, let's make sure that we're as protected as possible from COVID. Now, all of a sudden, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> I'm the alarmist here. <laughs> and this is just, this is odd. Um, I mentioned before, uh, that I've been telling people that, you know, you should wear a, a, a mask and people would come back to me and say, cloth masks don't work. 
And so I would say, well, why would you assume I'm talking about a cloth mask? Like, why wouldn't I be talking about a high quality mask that works, right? <laughs> like, whenever I tell people that they should wear a condom, nobody comes back to me and says, a sheepskin condom doesn't work, right? <laughs> we just assume that we're talking about the highest quality condoms that you can buy these days, right? Um, and so I, I feel like just the where people are coming from in these conversations, they're, they're coming from a place of COVID fatigue. They're coming from a place of just being over it, from having to learn and know too many different things over these last two and a half years, and from a place of having survived. The hardest people that I've talked to about COVID and their behaviors are people who had mild cases of COVID. Mm. Those are the people who are like, I've had it. It was nothing. You're making a big deal over something um, just for the fun of it. I don't know why they think I'm making a big deal of it. (laughs) Um, But those are the hardest people to talk to because they have had their own personal experiences with it and they just don't believe that there's an alternative experience that people have had or that people are, are going through right now. And so uh, I, I don't know the best way to reach that group, but I would love to hear how others are. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's a difficult question and it's, it's, I think it's refreshing to you uh, hear an expert say that they don't know. I mean, that's something that you frankly don't hear often enough, right? I mean, that's part of the problem that we have going on right now is that people are taking uncertain information and running with it. I mean, I think the the sort of landscape that we're, we're looking at right now, um, going into COVID, COVID's not going anywhere. We're going to have to, you know, continue to organize and continue to sort of push and do approaches to education and sort of public messaging that are not being done in in ways that uh, we shouldn't have to, right? And obviously, like, part of that is sort of trying to find ways to talk through, like, what what is actually sort of going on, where what is the sort of counter narrative that, like, could, could be happening? Is there other, any other messaging that you would sort of want to, like, sort of give a corrective frame to you that that we didn't get a chance to touch on because I feel like that's very much sort of the theme here is like we're we're touching on all of the things that like should be common sense but um you know abs and maybe absent like the sort of landscape of of, of uh, elite capture of expertise I don't know you know who knows this this could have been very different in a different political economy but in the sort of landscape that we are now you know is there anything that we didn't touch on that that you wanted to sort of talk about um, I think that one of the things I want people to know is that it is impossible for you to assess your own risk. Mm-hmm. You don't know what the person beside you has done unless you live with them or around them all the time. Uh, you don't know about the person on the airplane. You, I mean, you don't know how many air exchanges your office building has. Like there, It is impossible for you to assess your own risk. And if you can't assess your own risk, then your health is not in your hands. We live in a society where our health are dependent on the health of others. Mm-hmm. And so like, that is the message that people need to hear. And and there was a thread on Twitter started by an epidemiologist that said, this is what I got wrong in a pandemic. And then all these other epidemiologists came on and talked about you know the piece that they got wrong. And for me, the piece that I got wrong was that I thought that the pandemic would teach people that we are interconnected, that our health, that our lives are interconnected, and that my health depends on yours and your health depends on mine. Um, I really felt like 
a you know contagious airborne pandemic would teach us that, but instead uh, is taught us that individualism is the way to go, <laughs> and that survival of the fittest is you know what we need to be focused on once again. Yeah, and I I mean it's funny because that's that's the thing I got wrong as well is I thought that this was going to be um a, a wake up call to to like give people an understanding of sort of post viral illness because even early on when people you know you started getting those first uh reports of long covid in the first 6 months and it was like hmm. This sounds like it's going to be a sort of polio generation situation, right? Maybe this will have like the kind of requisite effects politically. But I think the thing that I was wrong about, right, is that I assumed that those political effects were intrinsic to the sort of violence that was happening. Mm -hmm. And what's actually going on is that like if we want those political effects, like we have to make them, we have to force the political will because right now, yes, what's stacked against us is like formidable, but you know, we we have like the unfortunate and very obvious truth on our side, which is that COVID is airborne and not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And one thing I keep reminding people who are upset about mitigations and upset that, you know, they have to do something is that the problem is not with the mitigations. The problem is the fact that we have this contagious virus that's out here, right? Uh, like we need to be trying to figure out how to, you know, stop the spread of the virus and not take away all mitigations because we're mad at the fact that we have to wear a mask and it's, you know, a little sweaty in the summer. So, yeah, I, I think helping people kind of reframe and see this as, yeah, your child's classroom closed because of COVID cases. The issue is not the fact that the classroom closed. The issue is the fact that you, we there were enough COVID cases that caused the whole classroom to close, right? Trying to reframe the problem for people has been a really hard task. Well, I mean, it is it is a lot of work. It requires a lot of energy and sort of sustained commitment. And that's something that's difficult, you know. But I, I, I think it's, it's funny. One of the things that I was just thinking of when you were talking earlier was this kind of... The kind of like approach to the pandemic early on, right? The approach to not knowing, I think, was valuable. And um, I appreciate the way that you sort of frame that, uh, not necessarily as a as an approach to not knowing, which is kind of like how it was framed early on, like, oh, we need caution because we don't know. Um, not knowing is kind of just a normal condition of science, right? I mean, it's controlling for what you know. We know that masks work and are the kind of intervention that if we're distributed in an equitable way directly to people, you know, would be a tremendous intervention. And these are the kinds of like ways that we have to be thinking and like willing to make demands. And I think right now it's just like not even the, you know, the sort of whole position of like having different opinions on COVID, like in and of itself, that's also redounded into the individualistic frame when it's like, oh no, you're just, paranoid oh you're just crazy you're hysterical you're you know being an alarmist like no like we're making like system critique like we're demanding things we're we're not um being crazy yeah so the the last thing i want to say is that i really wish i was old enough to know how things were done with the hiv epidemic and how we got people to know and understand like yes you're going to wear condoms Anytime you have, you know, a sexual encounter, um, 
that is without you know, that's not in a steady, stable relationship, right? Like that is something that was uh that a message that had to come out and had to have people, you know, learn and change their attitudes and their practices and buy something and do something each and every time, right? And now I, I don't think you can find, you know, a twenty something year old who doesn't know that message and it just hasn't been embedded as a part of their life, right? Uh so when people ask me and say stuff like, you want us to wear masks forever? Like, no, I don't. But if we have to, like, there's already been things that we do forever as a result of viruses that we don't want to catch, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this wouldn't be the first time if we had to wear masks forever. This wouldn't be the first time that we had to make a change to our lives and to our comfort and to the things that we're used to in order to stay alive, right? Like, this is like all, all of human, all of human. Uh, we're, we're only here because we adapted to things and were able to stay alive. So I think um, I, I really would love to know kind of how that messaging went from this being something odd and awkward and how do you have those conversations to something that now, you know, everybody just knows to do. And uh, I would love to learn from that in terms of what we could do for COVID and behavior changes here. Yeah, I think there are a lot of lessons to learn because, I mean, one of the things that uh, is is so important is that we have sort of tremendous reframes that we have to make. And this is going to be a long-term collective effort and it's going to require a lot of creative work and a lot of diligent and patient struggle. And I think that's something that we absolutely can look to people um, who have been working on that for decades now with HIV AIDS to try and figure out some some shortcuts to getting started because it's, you know, it's, um, I think it's a, it's a fight worth having, you know, when people ask me now, are you, oh, you want me to mask forever? I said, I say, if it's necessary, you know, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm willing to be honest and say that, right. You know, if it's necessary, yeah, I'm fine. Like you want to make it not necessary, then show up, (laughs) you know, like there's going to be some cooperation required and it's going to start you know not with arguing with me but with like arguing with people who are actually in a position to you know make sure that everyone gets the masks that they need to wear them forever because lord knows we should not have to fucking pay for them out of our pockets (laughs) right right well dr chapel thank you so much for taking the time it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And if you want to follow Dr. Chapel, she is at Teresa underscore Chapel on Twitter. Dr. Chapel, thank you so much again for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. Not a problem. I enjoyed every moment of it. Thank you. Take care. And if you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism and request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Bye.